Well, church family, we have arrived today at the end of Philippians. It's only taken six months, which by my calculations, depending on what time of year you would have left Philippi in the first century, you've got time to make two to four trips to Rome and back. So uh, do with that what you will. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going we're gonna to dive right in. As we've walked through the book of Philippians, we have... We have seen as God calls us through His Word, chapter 1, to be a gospel-driven church, a church whose singular focus, whose sole mission, who is unified and striving side by side for the sake of the gospel, for the proclamation of the good news of Christ in this world, that whosoever would respond would believe and be reconciled to God. We've seen in chapter 2 that that's not going to happen if, if we don't take the mindset of Christ and, and live as a humble church who in humility counts others as more important than ourselves, who sets aside personal pride and ambition and preference for the sake of God's work in us through and through us. We see there in chapter 3 that we're called to be a, a righteous church, but not just a righteous church in terms of we, we do things of our own, but a righteous church in that we understand where true righteousness comes from in Jesus Christ. And out of that, we are driven and, and hungry to seek to know Him above all things. And we walked into chapter 4 where we're called to stand firm, to be an unwavering church. And we get here to the end, and in this closing greeting, Paul wastes no time to pack very specific truths in. Look with me, chapter 4, Philippians, verse 21. Closing the letter, he writes and he says, "'Greet every saint in Christ Jesus.'" The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. That word greet there is, is not just a suggestion. It's, it's an imperative, an aorist imperative command. It's the kind of command that has a sense of passion and urgency, of, of immediacy to it. And, and it's sent to, going back to chapter 1, verse 2, he writes and he says to all the saints in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, including the pastors and deacons. And so this command, as the, as the letter finishes and, and they're reading the letter, he says, hey, pastors, you make sure quickly, urgently, rightly, greet every saint. And it's an interesting little construction. Did you catch it? I'm sure there's someone in here who is a diehard grammarian and they caught it. It wasn't me. I had to do a lot of work to see it. He doesn't say greet all the saints, plural. He says greet every saint, singular. Greet every saint, singular. He says greet every, because I don't want anybody left out. Nobody is to be left out. Everybody is on my heart and mind. Every one of you who are in the church in Philippi, you are precious and meaningful and important to me. But, but then he says saint, singular, Meaning that it's not satisfactory for the pastor to get up and say, hey, church, Paul says hi. That's not what he means. By using singular saint, what he means is, hey, you overseers, you go to each and every individual person in the church and you give them my warmest, deepest, most sincere affection and greeting. Because Paul is 
clear in this statement. He's been all throughout this letter. There is a deep and abiding affection in his heart for the believers in Philippi. Just like for the believers in Philippi, there is a deep and abiding affection for Paul. And Paul says, I want each person, there is no one who is lesser in the church. Now, it's interesting as well. This is one of the, the few greetings where when, or a uh, few farewells, not greetings, but farewells, where Paul doesn't name anyone. You can contrast this to, to Romans 16 where he's just naming all sorts of different people. Why, why does Paul not name anyone? Well, we don't 100% know. You'd have to ask Paul that question one day when you see him face to face. But likely... It's because he spent the whole letter talking, addressing a church that's a healthy church, that's a hungry church, that's a church active in ministry, but it's still a church made up of humans, and there's some problems. And those problems have centered around some people taking sides in petty arguments of, of dividing over some preference, of, of thinking one person's better than the other. He spent time walking through and acknowledging the call to humility, and so the fact that he names no one is likely his way of saying this. He says, church in Philippi, each and every one of you, each and every one of you is valuable and precious. And, and pastors, I want you to express that to everyone because there is no one who is not important and vital in the body of Christ. And at the same time, he makes it clear to all of them, not one of you is better than another. You are all on your knees at the foot of Jesus' throne recipients of grace and mercy. He says, greet every saint in, in Christ Jesus. And not only that, but he says, he says, the brothers who are with me greet you. He said, there's, there's believers with me. There's brothers and sisters in Christ, and they send their greetings. They send their affection, their love to you. Not just the ones who are with me, but, but all the saints greet you, especially of those who are, who are inside Caesar's household. Now, by Caesar's household, we don't mean uh, necessarily Caesar's family, his blood relatives, but, but those who would live in his household. So that could be family, that could be servants, that could be uh, various officials who take up residence inside Caesar, Caesar's household. And, and he says, they send their greetings to you. There is a love and an affection, a passion that comes and realize these are, there is a love and affection. We, we can maybe kind of wrap our minds around Paul and the Philippians. They knew each other. They, were, they had a relationship. But realize this love and affection that is there, it goes beyond people that there's an actual relationship with in terms of they've seen each other, they've given each other a hug and a high five. There's not probably much reason to suspect that the saints in Rome and the saints in Philippi would, would really ever cross paths. Yet there is a love and an affection for each other, even though they don't know what each other looks like, they don't know what each other sounds like, they'll probably never see each other. There is a mutual love and affection because they're saints. They're saints. You catch that in here? Greet all, greet every saint. All the saints greet you. Here is this word, saint. Here's this word, saint. It literally, it comes from the word for holy. It, it means holy ones. 
those who are holy. And, and, and you remember, church family, uh, holy does, does not simply reference moral purity. Absolutely, one who is holy is, is morally pure, but, but it's actually beyond that. There's a bigger definition beyond that. There's a reason for the moral purity, and it's because holy means to be separate, to be separated from but not just separated from something, it, it really means to be separated to something. The term saints is referencing the fact that for those who are in Christ Jesus, by grace through faith, we have been separated from sin, death, and this world. But we've not just been separated from, we have been separated for the purpose of God's own possession a people for his own possession, a, a royal priesthood. To be a saint then, first and foremost, is to be one who has been saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus, the person and work, what Jesus, fully God, fully man, has done in our behalf. It is to be declared righteous, to be, to be seen as righteous, to receive Christ's righteousness, right standing with God, to be reconciled with God. And, and because you and I now in Christ are seated at the table of the most highest sons or daughters, our position is that of saint. That's what he says of, of saint. And to be a saint, it carries a certain weight of position, but not just that position, it also carries purpose. I've been separated out for God's ownership, son or daughter position, but that position then drives my purpose. I've been separated out for God's ministry. And because I've been separated out for God's ministry, I've been separated out for a different way of life that flows from my position. It's because they are saints, because they are equal partakers in the grace and mercy of God, there is an affection that goes across thousands of miles because there is a mutual relationship with each other in Christ and a mutual ministry that they have for Christ. And church family, understand, if, if we're going to be an unwavering church in this world, we, we've got to wrap, as we come to the end of Philippians, we've got to wrap these two things. We've got to understand the affection that must be present between us and not just us as a local church, First Baptist Pflugerville, but us as a local church with other churches. Because we really understand and are confident in our position as saints. There's got to be an affection that drives us. Remember, church family, remember what we've seen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer for you. Verse 5, in view of your participation, in view of your participation, your, your participatory fellowship, the fact that you are sharing in and actually engaging in the gospel ministry. Further down in verse 7, he says, you are all partakers of grace with me. There is a common affection, church family, that should connect us, should bind us, should drive us. As a church family, as you look around the room, if this is in fact your church family, you have joined, you've said, I, I'm going to covenant my life here as a member of First Baptist Pflugerville. If we are church family in that way, there is an affection that should drive us, and that affection starts at its base because we are mutual participants in the work and ministry of the gospel. We're mutual participants because all of us are undergoing the continued sanctification, the working out of God's salvation in our life, but we're not just mutual participants in, in God's salvation being worked out in our life, but we're mutual participants in the ministry it calls us to. 
partakers. Not only that, but there, remember what Paul prays in verse 9, I pray this, chapter 1, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more. His prayers that there would be a love abounding, this flows after. He says, I long for you. I feel this affection for you. Church family, there is a love that God intends to bind us together for one another. It's something we ought to be praying to grow. It's something that grows as we take up our place to be participants in and partakers of the work and ministry of the gospel. It's going to mean if this affection is going to flourish between us, it's going to mean that we have to walk in humility, chapter 2, and not merely look out for our own interests, but the interests of other. And in humility of, of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves, which leads us to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It means we're going to have to, in humility, put aside petty conflicts that could divide us for absolutely no purpose. We're going to have to put aside petty preferences. We're going to have to put aside seeing one as, as more than the other. we got to be clear, church family, that inside of our church there is no one person in this room more important than another. Not only that, but all of you in this room, all of us belong to some kind of, we can come up with different kind of groups. Some are men, some are women. Some are boomers. Some are Xers. Some are millennials. Some are wires. Some are whatever the new name is going to be after that. Oh, because Z, that's right. Y is millennial. Z is current college students, and what's after Z? Don't know. It's not my job to figure that one out. We're all part of different groups, and let's be clear, there is no one group in this church more important than another. But let's also be clear, if we really have this kind of affection for one another in Christ, the kind of affection that goes thousands of miles to say greetings, greet each and every one, if we really have this kind of affection, let's be clear, whatever group I'm a part of, if I'm really walking in the humility of Christ, then though no group is more important than another, if I am in a group, every other group is more important than mine. Because in humility, I count others. It means everybody else's growth matters. It means whatever is, is best for that group, for that person to grow, for the fullness of Christ to be in their lives, I am for that, even if it means I have to sacrifice things. It means, church family, we're part of something far greater than ourselves. We're part of something far greater than ourselves. We're part of the ministry of Christ. It means we are called to love each other. And understand, church family, you, you and I, we need each other. Amen. We were not called to live the Christian life in a silo, solo. You and I are called as believers. We're automatically placed in the family of God. And the idea of being a believer and not part of a local church where you are lovingly and, and humbly engaged in walking, it's foreign in the New Testament. But it's common today. And we need to make no mistake, church family, there should be a love that connects and, and binds us because we need each other. We don't just need each other for the sake of mutual encouragement and mutual ministry. Listen, God has laid a, a calling, a mission, as we'll see in a moment, in front of our, in front of our feet. He's, he's called us to it, and none of us can do it alone. I cannot make disciples of all Pflugerville as pastor of First Baptist. There's not enough time in the week for me to even try to meet with one person for an hour. But we can be used by God to reach Pflugerville Amen. and Hutto and Elgin and Maynard 
and Round Rock and Austin, and who knows where else God would take. I, I can't fund a whole lot of missionaries overseas, but we as a Southern Baptist church through giving as a local church with others, we have over 4,000 church planning missionaries overseas, discipling and training up local pastors and, and local leaders to take the gospel. It, is, it can't just be one of us. It is all of us. We need each other. There is an affection that should bind. There is a love that should be present in this room and church family. Bethany and I have been blown away experiencing the love in this church. In many ways, we've done well, and God calls us to do even better. God calls us to love, to that affection to grow, for that love to abound more and more and more. There must be an affection between us if we are to be an unwavering church, but not just between us and the church, with our church and other churches. There should be love for other churches. You and I, we should celebrate. We should thank the Lord. We should praise the Lord for doctrinally and ministerially faithful sister churches. Other churches that are walking well with Jesus are never competition. That's the business world. We're not a business. We're a church family. And that sister church walking well with Jesus, they're our family too. They're not our competition. We praise the Lord for them. It equally means when we see churches fall and cave doctrinally or ministerially, we grieve because we're seeing a part that's, that's at least claiming to be part of the body and in many cases is walking in a way unworthy of the gospel. We grieve. It means we should partner and lock, lock arm in arms. Listen, there, it was amazing to me. We, we, we had several big nationally known speakers come through during my time at A&M, and they were always blown away by some of these, these things that the college ministries of various churches would get together and do, and, and, and they, they just couldn't, it was, it was sad how amazed they were, because it reflects the fact that so many churches refuse to partner together. But if I were to take you back to College Station and, and we were to jump back into college ministry, what I could show you is about 12 to 14 other churches that I know really walk well with Jesus. At least 10 of them, I'm good friends with their college pastors. And we were all really clear. We didn't see each other as threats. We didn't see each other as competition. We saw each other as partners in the gospel because not one of our churches could handle reaching all 80,000 students in Bryan College Station. But us together, God could use us to do that. Church family, there's got to be an affection between us for other churches locally, an affection for other churches in our area. Now listen, I'll be clear here. This is just as more informative just so we understand as a church. I'm not trying to convince anybody to be a Southern Baptist, but we are a Southern Baptist church, and here's what some of that means as far as our affection for others. We are part of a local association, the Austin Baptist Association, where we partner with over 200 other churches to minister to the greater Austin metropolitan area. We're part of a state convention, the SBTC, the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, over 2,500 other churches we partner with to do things like church planting in places where there are no churches in our state. And there are those places, by the way. Don't, don't believe the myth that, oh, we're great, we're Texas, we've got a great Christian foundation here. Uh, we might, but there's also a lot of places where there aren't churches. That's where we partner to do disaster relief and to minister in those ways. On a, on a national and global level, we're part of the bigger Southern Baptist Convention, 47,000 plus churches where we send people to seminary and send people church planters. There's over 10,000 church planters planting churches and training locals to plant churches all over the nation and world. 
You see, church family, the idea behind all of it is not to be part of a group or get a stamp or this or that. It's the idea of partnership, that there is an affection between bodies of Christ. There is an affection in the church in Rome for the church in Philippi and vice versa because we are called to a common purpose and mission. And we're called to a common purpose and mission because we're saints. Church family, if we're going to be an unwavering church, there can't just be an affection between us as a local church and with other churches. We've got to be confident who we are in Christ. Now, I want you to hear this. Saint. When I say saint, many of you probably start thinking uh, what, what is probably predominant in culture. Maybe you go jolly Saint Nicholas. Or maybe Saint Patrick. Or Saint Augustine. Or, see, there's this idea in culture where a saint is basically someone who professes Christ, who, who is a really, really, really excellent doer of stuff for Jesus, and they gotta have a couple miracles sprinkled in there too, and when, then we go, they're a saint. They're the Hall of Famer Christian. Let's be clear, that was made up by traditions of man. That is not found in the word of God. You and I are not a saint because of great stuff we do. Do you see it in there? Do you see back in chapter four there? Greet greet every saint in Christ Jesus. You and I have been made a holy one, declared a saint, because you and I are found, if in fact we are in Christ in salvation, it is because of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, that if you and I have asked him to save us, then we are a saint, We are a saint, a holy one. We've been set apart for God's possession. Think about that right now. Right now, if you're in this room and you know Jesus Christ personally, you are a saint. You're a saint. You're a holy one. No matter how good, how bad, or how ugly your walk was coming into church this morning, if you are in Jesus Christ by the grace of God, you are a saint, a holy one. You have been set apart For God's own possession, you are positionally a son or daughter of God. You've been set apart not just for his possession, but for his ministry. Meaning as a son or daughter of God, you are a holy one. You have an actual ministry. Your life on this world is not just to toil and spend 40 years working 8 to 5 to stack up a 401k to have a nice retirement. You have people that God intends to use you to reach an impact for eternity. You've been set apart for his ministry. You've been set apart for a different life. If you and I are a saint, and because of our position in Christ, it calls us and enables us to live out a holy life, a life that looks different from everything in this world understand we've got to be confident and rest this is what it means that we're saints in this room if you're in Christ it means we're forgiven our past our sins past present future they're dealt with we've been redeemed we've we've been bought with a price we are no longer what is old we are new and we are free to follow Christ we are forgiven as a saint we are pure we're no longer defined by guilt and shame but we're defined by the blood of Christ and his righteousness, which means we're reconciled. Church family, if you and and me are saints, we're reconciled. We have a real personal abiding relationship with, with the Most High. It means you don't have to go through 
the specified holy person to talk to God. You have a relationship with God. We've been reconciled. Doesn't just mean we've been reconciled. It, it means we're secure. Our names have been engraven on the palms of his hands. I got news. Nothing in all of creation can take away the scars on Christ's hands that were there for you and I. says that no one is able to, Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. It says when you and I come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit fills us and seals us. And that word seal is a word that, that references something that can never, even by the king, be undone. We're secure. And on days when you as a believer, on those bad and ugly days where you go, I just, man, I don't, I don't, I am not acting like a holy one today. And all of a sudden, that guilt and shame hits you, and you go, well, I've got to, I'm going to have to work my way back up. Got to have, make sure I have two quiet times every day this week. I'm going to tithe 17%. And I'm going to make sure to volunteer at three more Awanas than I did last year. Understand, works don't give us our security. There is not one of us when we have ugly days as a believer who is worse off now than we were when we were by nature a child of wrath. And God loved us and out of his rich abundant mercy saved us in his grace when we cried out. We're secure, which means this, we can come boldly and confidently. Scripture says to run to the throne of God with all confidence. The language there is, is the language uh, that speaks of no inhibitions, no worry. We, we run into the throne room. Yes, it is the throne room of the Most High. Whereas Esther, there was intimidation. There was even a threat of life to come into the throne room of her husband. You and I, there is no threat or danger. We are, we are urged by God to run into his throne room. Let me give you the easy picture. You watch at some point today, church family. I don't know what door it'll be. But at some point at the end, one of these doors will open. And Jesse doesn't care how big you are. She doesn't care how important you are. She didn't care anything. All she knows when she's actually right out that window, right there. Look at that. <laughs> Hi, sweetie. <laughs> if that door opens, she doesn't care what the moment is. All she knows is I am her father. I love her. She is secure. And she is going to run with boldness and confidence to my arms. That is the picture of what it means. If we are a saint, our position, this is what it means. And because this is our position, church family, because we don't have to work into this position, because it is who we are in Christ by his grace, we're called to live out that holiness. We're called to live out a life of righteousness. We are called to live out a life on mission, ambassadors for Christ. You say, well, pastor, that's incredible, but how are we supposed to do that? Well, Paul doesn't stop there at verse 22. Look what he says in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Again, there's an interesting little thing there. Spirit is not plural. He says spirit singular because what he means, this is Paul saying, this is what Paul's wishing. His final words, it's how he begins the letter, it's how he ends the letter. It says, church in Philippi, may you know and experience daily, moment by moment, the grace of God in each and every one of your own personal spirit. The grace of God, that unmerited favor of God, that undeserved acceptance and love given by God to man, that, that, that power and strength and might, that good gift of God that you and I don't get because we earned it or deserve it or because we ever could. That's the point of grace. If we could ever earn it or deserve it, it wouldn't be grace. 
And God's grace is not just seen for salvation. Understand, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is clear. Salvation is by grace. And we do want to be clear on that today, whether you're in the room or you're watching online. Salvation is not found in your family lineage. It's not found in how faithful your church attendance is. It's not found in baptism. It's not found in sacraments. It's not found in confirmation. The only way possible for a person to be saved from the sin we are born into, from the separation we are born into from God, the only possible way is for that salvation is, is through God's grace. Maybe you're out there today and say, I've never experienced God's grace. I've got great news for you. Can you experience it through a, 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 a response of repentant faith? Repentance, Lord, you're right. I need you. Faith, I am, I am completely sitting the entirety of my being, trusting who you are and what you've done to save me and, and, and reconcile me to God. But understand, church family, the grace of God is not just there for salvation. It's, it's the same grace that you and I are called to live in every day. We're not saved by grace to then live out our salvation by our own effort. We're saved by grace to live out our salvation by his grace you hear Paul there in Corinthians, Lord, if you would just take this thorn from me, I could, I could do so much more for your kingdom. I could be so much more effective. This thorn, whatever it was, let's pretend it's something physical. This thorn limits me to preaching twice a day. If you took it away, I could preach eight times a day. That's more people hearing the gospel. And what does the Lord say? He says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. My grace is enough. And my power, the power that draws people to me, my power, the power that has the power to save, my power, the power to move, the power to go beyond what you could ever dream is not perfected in your might and strength, but in your weakness. See, church family, how are we supposed to, how is this love and affection supposed to bind us together? How, how out of our position as saints do we carry out that sainthood? How by God's good grace. By God's grace. And understand, church family, God delights to show grace. Grace describes how God acts. If mercy is, is an attribute of God, of how God, how God feels, if we want to use that term, then grace is how he acts. And he delights to act in grace. He delights to give his enough, all-sufficient grace to his children and the danger here when Paul says, I want you to know the grace, the danger is not I want you to know the grace because somehow if, if, you, if you don't look up at the right moment, God won't give it to you. No, the issue's not if God's giving it. God will supply the grace. The danger is the same for the church in Philippi as us, that you and I can be so blinded by ourselves, by our strength, by our might, by our own attempts at righteousness that we don't learn how to depend completely and fully and totally by faith in God's grace. And this leads us then to a final question. And the question I'd lay before us, church family, is simply as a church family, what is our aim? What's the end goal? I know in talking, many of us, we all have hopes and dreams and, and prayers for this church, but what's, what's the aim? What is the end goal? What has God given us? And there's an interesting little statement in here that in our final moments I want to draw our attention to. 
It says, all the saints greet you, especially of Caesar's household. Did you catch that the first time we read it through? Especially of Caesar's household. There are followers of Christ, sons and daughters of the king, men and women who have been saved by grace through faith inside Caesar's household. Or maybe let's be more specific. The saints in Nero's house greet you. The emperor who is as wicked as you can imagine, who is aloof, who is a fool when it comes to governance, who is wrapped up in his own self-centered uh, desires and things, the same, the same ruler who will in a few years put both Peter and Paul to death, the same ruler who will burn part of the city and blame it on the Christians, that ruler, there are saints in his house. But hang on a second, 30 years prior to this, on a hilltop, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus looked at 11 of the 12, because Judas had betrayed Christ and killed himself and was gone. 11 of the 12, there's only, beyond that 11, there's only 128 people out of, out of a world that at that time was anywhere from 170 to 330 million people. There's only 128 followers of Christ that Jesus looked out and he said, you will be my witnesses. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when the Holy Spirit comes, comes in and takes up residence in you, you will be filled with power, with the ability to actually do it, and you will be my witnesses. You will be the ones to testify, to tell the world who I am, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, your home in Judea and Samaria, your broader region and that other region next to your region which is filled with people who aren't like you and drive you crazy, and to the ends of the earth. Here Jesus laid out the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the things I have commanded you, and look, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this 128 group of people who had no seminaries, no financial backers, no partners, no friendly governments in the world towards their cause. In 30 years, from a hilltop with 128 people that are gathered in a room praying, we find the gospel. We find not just the gospel, but, but believers in Nero's house. How do we get there? Well, I'm going to give you the flash version, but if you were to look at the book of Acts, it's clear. How do we get there? The empowering of the Holy Spirit. Church family, we can't get there if we don't learn how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you want to know how that's done? By being confident of who we are in Christ, saints, and by his grace living it out. We don't get there if we're not obedient to live and proclaim the gospel. Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit later on. There's no other name under heaven. Listen, church family, the gospel doesn't get to the halls of Congress or the White House or the Kremlin if you and I never share it. And that doesn't mean we have to all be cold turkey street witnesses, but every one of us has coworkers, neighbors, friends, family, teammates, classmates. Are we praying, God, who is someone you've placed in my life? Are we praying, God, will you open a door? Are we looking? Are we going? And by the way, are we asking for boldness? Because it will take boldness to share the gospel. But good news, God in his grace always delights to give his people boldness when they ask. Happens every time in Acts. 
It's gonna mean we've gotta be faithful to daily ministry. Listen, that early church didn't go and sit around and strategize. How do we get the gospel to Caesar's house? They just said, we're gonna obey the Lord every day. We're gonna be faithful to the Lord's place right in front of us. Those, the early church, they did it together as a family. Just why Paul told us, I wanna see that you're striving side by side as a gospel-driven church for the, for the faith of the gospel in one spirit, one mind, one purpose. Church family, we have to do it together, which means this. Last week I shared the 80-20 ratio. 20% of the church does 80% of the ministry. If we are going to be a church that's part of what God would do to take the gospel to every corner of the world, that ratio must forever die in our midst. It must be put to death. Every one of us in this room, if you are in Christ, you are a saint, and God has called you and tasked you and given you a ministry. Hear the call to step into what that is. And if you go, well, I need help with that, wonderful. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. It's gonna mean following the leading of the Holy Spirit to unexpected plans. Paul, at one point, as he traced the gospel and acts as it moves through Judea to Samaria, and it's starting to go to the ends of the earth, Paul wants to go right into Asia, and twice it says that the Holy Spirit, God himself, said no. And then came the Macedonian vision, and he went left. And where did he go first? Philippi. Sometimes the Holy Spirit and his leadership for us personally, for us congregationally, we may think we gotta go this way, we gotta go this way. Are we willing to set aside whatever we think to follow where he clearly leads? Often under hardship. Time doesn't permit me to go through even just Paul's journey in, in the book of Acts, but understand, church family, if we're gonna be a church that's part of, part of this, it's going to mean often we face hardship, rejection, that person not wanting to talk to you, loneliness from classmates or peers. It may even mean at some point you're flagged for sharing disinformation because you're, you're talking about a dead man who's still alive because he rose again, which by the way is scientifically impossible. Good thing God doesn't work through, God, God's power is not limited by science. And we're gonna do it, church family, by God's all-sufficient grace for his all-encompassing mission. I just lay this before you, this little statement, the gospel there, the saints in Caesar's household greet you, church family. And I guess I lay before it, what is our aim? So we walk through Philippians, our aim in, in loving one another and the affection that binds us together to, to partner with each other in this congregation, with other congregations, the, the understanding and confidence of who we are Saints, so we live out sainthood all, how by God's grace. What is the aim of all of that? The aim of all of it is it's all about Christ and his mission and his glory. Amen. And because it's his mission and his glory backed by his power, it can go from 11 ragtag, random selection of disciples to the saints in Caesar's household greet you. Not by human wisdom, power, or convenience, but by the might of the Lord. Amen. What will our aim be, church family? That's what I ask this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much that you are a God abounding in mercy. Lord, you see in every one of our lives, you saw it. For every one of us that is your son or daughter, you saw us 
in our sin. You saw the needs, you saw the desperation, and you took action. You sent your son. Jesus, you lived, you died, you rose. And Father, when we cry out and ask to be reconciled to you, when we repent of our sin, and when we trust Jesus, that you are truly who you say you are, and, and what you've said you've done is good, God, you act in grace and you save us. And Lord, even as believers in this room, it's overwhelming to think about the reality of the task you've laid in front of us. We do have daily life. Bills have to be paid. Checks have to be written. Papers have to be done. Grades have to be tallied. Assignments turned in. The floors need to be vacuumed. Meals need to be cooked. Beds need to be made. And Lord, you don't deny any of that. It's it's the transforming of all of that where, yes, we still engage in those things, but, Lord, we see and we're on your mission as ambassadors. Lord, may it be. You look down, you see the needs in our lives. You, you're still, your mercies are new every morning for every one of us in Christ. Lord, may we be a church that loves each other, confident in living out the position and title of saints you've given us. May we be a church who does it all by your grace. And God, may we be a church whose aim, Jesus, is nothing short of you. Faithfulness to you. Jesus, we look to you now in this time of response. It's in your name I pray.